You're listening to Brave Not Perfect with Rashma Sajani, presented by Anchor and Girls Who Code. This week, I'm talking with my dear friend, Ali Yarrow. Uh, Ali and I are secretly hoping that our children one day fall in love and get married. We have spent countless, countless hours biking and swimming and talking about all things feminism. Uh, I'm really excited. She's got a new book coming out uh, about the 90s and about 90s feminism called 90s Bitch, Media, Culture, and the Failed Promise of Gender Equality. I have been waiting for this book for a really long time. I'm so excited to talk with my friend. So you've written about a lot of things. Why did you decide to write an entire book about the 90s? I think it really started when I slapped my friend in the face because she called me a bitch. <laughs> and this was when I was quite young. And I totally can't see you doing that. I totally did it. I totally <laughs> did it. And at the time, it just felt like bitch was the worst thing you could call a woman. And I was so upset. And that was in the 90s. And I, I started to look back at the various stories of women in the 90s. I thought that these women were bitches because the media narrative was suggesting that they were, whether they were associated with sex, whether they were reaching for power, running for office in the White House. These women were being um, described in the narrative as bitches. And so I thought that that just can't be right. It can't be the case that all of these women are bitches. Like what women? So if you're a Martian... And you were not born in the 90s. Like, what women are we talking about? So I like to think of the decade as being framed by two, if you will, sex scandals. Anita Hill in 1992 at the beginning of the 90s and Monica Lewinsky at the end of the decade. So there you had two women who were in the news for being associated with sex. Anita Hill had charged uh, that she had been sexually harassed at work by her boss, Clarence Thomas. And Monica Lewinsky was wrapped up in a sex scandal with Bill Clinton, the president of the United States. So these two women were sort of painted as too hot and too cold, Monica Lewinsky and Anita Hill. And everywhere in between, whether you were uh, running for office, whether you were in the government, or if you were a rock star, more women were performing and rising on the charts in the music industry. No matter who you were in the 90s, if you were part of the media narrative, you were cast as a bitch. So you have these two women in these kind of charged sex scandals. And at the same time, you have a ton of these powerful women that are like climbing to the pop charts like Madonna. Madonna is more like more late 80s. 80s. Right, yeah, late 80s, but, right. So Alanis Morissette right. and Paula Cole oh, and I TLC, oh, I love TLC, Salt Creep. and Peppa. Right. Right. You had all of these women who were, um, and, and also I would I would mention the Riot Girl movement. So right. that was a political movement and a musical movement at the beginning of the decade that seeded a lot of the ideas about, it was sort of like a precursor to Me Too in a lot of ways. Riot Girls were, um, they were speaking out against sexual harassment, rape, and gender inequalities. They were pro choice they um they were really out there and a lot of the sort of angry women rockers that we come to sort of know of like Alanis Morissette they were sort of um on the on the heels of the riot girl movement thanks to my team I'm like newly obsessed with Cardi B right and so she in some ways resembles right some of these kind of badass women in the 90s but she's celebrated today as an icon 
everyone loves her, right? If you're like our grandmother or if you're a 17-year-old kid because you admire her authenticity and her ability to just tell people to, you know, piss off. Yeah, I wonder, I mean, I wonder if she could even exist if not for Lisa Left Eye Lopez, who was sort of the member of TLC who made headlines for her music, but also made headlines when she burned down her boyfriend, Andre Risen's house. Right. He had been, you know, he'd been abusing her. The media narrative was she did burn down his house. And she was crazy because she did that. Well, I mean, that's how the media narrative painted her, right? right? I mean, she was, he was the sympathetic one, despite that he had like shot a gun at her and beat her up. But we didn't hear about that. We just heard about her being crazy and burning down the house. Right. Because we wanted to cast these women in these archetypes of being a bitch. Why do you think that is? The 24-hour news cycle was very new. And so as that emerged and you could sort of watch these stories all the time, uh, women became really relentless content. And so the 24-hour news cycle traded on women. It sort of made women what we were consuming. Right. Were women becoming more threatening in the workforce too? What was happening economically? In the 90s, marriage was on the decline. So women were getting married later or not at all. So there was this new sense of sexual freedom. You could see it reflected in television. Characters like Ally McBeal, they were single, they were Ivy League educated, and they were, you know, doing that law firm job. They were not having babies, not getting married. Sex in the City is another example. Living Single, which is right. a show that I loved. Similar women who were, were free and were sort of presented as uh, agents of their own independence, and so that was a new that was a new woman in in the culture in the '90s that was being exhibited, right. and there was a lot of pushback to characters like that on television. But what they really did was reflect women in the workforce in the '90s, right. and that was threatening to people because Absolutely. it felt like it was like we are breaking up American families, we're breaking up culture, and like these women are now coming for our jobs. There were a lot of articles at the time criticizing Allie McBeal, criticizing yeah. the women of Living Single, criticizing, you know, Carrie Bradshaw and her friends saying, oh, they could never afford those apartments or those shoes in reality. Uh, but I think what it all was was a pushback against women sort of advancing in society. Yeah. And it's so interesting because I am definitely, I'm a lawyer because of those women. I thought that they were amazing and I wanted to be just like them. But if I didn't see those women on television, I don't think we could have aspired. So at the same time, I felt empowered in the 90s seeing these women, right? And I think the men felt threatened. Mm, is, is that really Would you say that that's right? I think there was a lot of... Um there were a lot of advancements by women sort of coming into the 90s, but the narrative around women in the 90s was that any time they were presented as successful, like Allie, like Carrie, like the women of Living Single, it was, yeah, it was presented as a threat. Another archetype that was often criticized in the 90s was the mom, right? Mm. So you had, um, if you remember, Zoe Baird was nominated yes. for, yeah, I mean, there's a name you oh haven't heard God. in a long time, right. right? Zoe Baird was Bill Clinton's first pick for attorney general of the United States. Now it was going to be a woman. She was going to be the first female attorney general. And then she was taken down by Nannygate. It was uncovered that um, she was not paying her childcare on the books. And so she was no longer the nominee for the job. Well, it turns out, probably not to your surprise or anyone's surprise, that other candidates for cabinet positions who were men were not asked about their childcare decisions. Right. And it's it's mostly male power structures, right, making these decisions, whether that's Congress. Tell me about the media, right? The media, too, is mostly male, right, putting out these archetypes. Absolutely. Newsroom directors, by and large. 
large were men at the time. Uh, the amount of characters on television and in films were, you know, mostly male. Uh, so that was, you know, the who who was making the decisions, who was in power was was very much mostly men. I just downloaded Jennifer Palmieri's book, Madam President, and I was listening to the Daily and her interview, and it was interesting how she was saying Hillary was actually quite reluctant to run because she was very familiar with all of these archetypes throughout the years. And she was more reluctant to think that we would ever get to a place where we wanted to see a woman in power without thinking that she's a bitch or too ambitious. Um, and so it's, it's interesting to think about, well, how much has changed? Has it really changed? Or are we in a movement where we feel like it's changed and then it's just going to go back to what it was? We're just seeing history repeat itself. I mean, this happened before. I think when Hillary ran in 2008, she had less appetite for associating with um, with feminism and with the gender equality movement. She didn't really talk about running as a woman and what that meant. But when she ran in 2016, she of course did. I mean, she, um, she cited the gender pay gap and she said, if I'm playing the woman card, deal me in, remember? Right. Yep. She was much more apt to sort of use the banner of feminism to kind of elevate her position and, and claim her right to power. And now, I mean, you know, that was a big shift and we're having a big shift again. I mean, it, the, despite the fact that the Me Too movement has emerged and despite Time's Up and sort of all of this attention, we are no doubt in the midst of a feminist backlash. Yeah. And it's just, it's history repeating itself. It's so funny, I had this young girl come visit me today and me and her mother and her were talking about math. And she's like, oh, mommy, I hate math. And she's like, but you do so well on it. Why do you hate math? And she was like, well, you know, my math teacher gave me an assignment and, you know, she only gave me a minute to complete it. So the only thing that I got to do was write my name on the piece of the paper. And then she called on me to tell the whole class what the solution was. And so instead of saying that, that I didn't have the answer, I said I needed to go to the bathroom because I didn't want her to be mad at me. Mm. And I didn't want to be embarrassed. And then she took a second. And she said, but, you know, I don't know why I'm embarrassed because the boys do the same thing and they're never embarrassed. But it's so interesting, right, how, like, how much is this changing the way kind of little girls are actually thinking about themselves, like their voice, their autonomy, their ability to say, you know, hey, give me a second. Let me tell you what I think. But she still is worried about what people think about her. So we can trace a lot of this to the 90s. Uh, we saw some of the seminal research on girlhood come to be and become public. So we saw for the first time that girls were losing their self-esteem in school at a greater rate than boys. Boys and girls started out with the same levels of self-esteem, the same levels of class participation and confidence. But as girls aged, starting at about around eight years old, they began to lose their self-confidence and they began to lose their self-esteem at a much more alarming rate than boys. Boys continued to raise their hands in class. Girls became more fearful of doing that. Uh, and I think a lot of the reason for some of um, some of these shifts, you can look at the culture in the 90s, right? So we had the explosion of teen magazines in the 90s, uh, which often were, you know, advocating for a very limited type of beauty and sexuality and body. Right. And how and to turn your guy on in 10 days or how to whatever, turn your guy on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there were just these ridiculous quizzes right. about, you know, is he that into you? And right. all of this. I uh, did take those. I I did too. Uh, yeah. I did too. I thought we had to. So there was that. And then there was 
marketing, the marketing of girl power. Uh, so what the riot girls were doing, the sort of political movement, um, was sublimated into girl power, which was marketing and shopping. It was mm. what was presented in magazines and it was what was presented sort of what you needed to wear. Um, so girls were told that if they wanted to be powerful, they could buy signifiers of, of power. They could buy a t-shirt that said girl power, or they could buy an American girl doll, which um, was supposed to give them confidence and self-esteem. So that was, so you had a lot of these messages and now all of the girls of the nineties who experienced these messages, who were losing their self-esteem, who were taking the quiz about how to, you know, how not to lose the guy and who were um, being sold girl power are now adults. And we have a lot of questions. Yeah. And we still are sitting with some of that, that dualness of I'm a badass, but I'm still sitting with all of this lack of self-esteem because we were never told how to actually have self-esteem we were just told how to buy it yeah I don't feel like that there's that much difference right now I'm incredibly hopeful because I think we're learning how to speak out because I think for far too long these things would be done to us whether it's you know a co-worker saying something inappropriate and we would just kind of laugh it off or pretend it didn't happen and now we're like uh we're, we're challenging them so I think that that's changing but I still don't feel like we live in a world where we love strong women we don't love strong women we need to love strong women strong women still threaten the power structure which is is not made up of predominantly strong women so it feels like the connection to today is like really emphasizing that to young women like you have a systemic right to be an equal person in terms of your sexuality, in terms of how you dress, like what you want to aspire to be. How do we, and how do we use lessons in the teachings of the 90s to really emphasize this point? We can no longer assume that we're equal to men. We have to demand that we are, mm. that we are human, yeah. that we um, should be reaching for power and taking power. The 90s was a lesson. It was just a blur of a decade in which women were fit into stereotype after stereotype. We were the bad mom, the bitch, the slut, the um, we were trying too hard, we weren't trying hard enough. It's just sort of all of these, this constellation of stereotypes about women that just simply are not true. So what we can learn from the 90s is that if we don't understand our history, it will repeat itself. It's repeating itself right now. Every time I think of you, I think about how we were together on election night, which still feels like one of the most devastating nights of my life um, in Javits Center. I remember I was wearing all white. I had been in Pennsylvania um, helping the campaign like send out voters, came back to vote with my vote with Sean, my son. And I had this like sick feeling like as we were getting in the cab going to the Javits Center and then remember us sitting at that table in that room and ah uh, i was super pregnant you're super pregnant yeah i mean hillary clinton her story is is such a 90s story in a lot of ways right her introduction to the nation in 1992 was sitting beside her husband defending him against charges of his affair with Jennifer Flowers so that was her introduction to the nation was standing by a man who had done something wrong so there was automatically just so much ire directed at her for holding that position and you know she would on campaign events she would speak before him and she would speak really eloquently and people would would ask her if she were really gunning for the vice presidential nominee 
Cheney instead of Al Gore. And, you know, it was clear really early on how smart she was. And Bill Clinton was very, um, he often said that, you know, she, like, she should be running instead of me. Uh, and so there was this sense very early on in the 90s that she was defending this man, that she was reaching for too much power, and that she was a threat. And so once she got into the White House, this really, this began to sort of blow up. So the way the press covered her was that she was reaching for too much. The public believed that they had voted for Bill Clinton. They hadn't voted for a co-presidency. Mm. They hadn't voted for Hillary Clinton. So there was a lot of anger uh, at her for uh, what was perceived as her taking too much. So this is her introduction to the country. So fast forward to election night 2016. A lot of people wanted her to win. And at the Javits Center, what stuck with me was all of the children who were mm. there with their parents, the little girls mm-hmm. and the little boys. Never forget. Yep. Looking just right? Never forget. Looking around at the adults' faces and wondering what had happened. Why is everyone crying? Why is everyone crumpled on the floor? This was supposed to be a history-making night. You know, this this glass ceiling glass above ceiling. us mm. at the Javits Center, there's this glass ceiling. They chose that location, the campaign, because she was going to metaphorically break the ceiling that night, right? Yeah. And yet she was stopped by a rival campaign of crude sexism, the Trump campaign. I mean, just the, the sexism that we saw in that election was unlike anything we'd ever seen before. Yeah. But what it, it it shouldn't be a surprise that we saw that and that we see this kind of sexism in the White House itself today. Considering what the sexism is like in our in our culture and our society at large, we maybe we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, I don't think it's a surprise to her. I'll never forget. So the next morning, I got a text message that she was giving her concession speech. You know, get out of bed, grab Nahal run there and I am like basically like in my clothes from like the night before like just been crying you know for the past however many hours didn't sleep and she gives this incredible speech in that purple purple suit and there's probably only it's mostly her campaign staff and a couple of us I mean it was a small room and we're all you know giving her a hug at the end and I'm bawling like like I have never cried like this. And she just grabs my shoulder and she's like, you're going to, it's going to be fine, Rashma. And I'm like, you're telling me, but it's like, she knew, you know what I mean? Like she wasn't surprised that this was the way it was going to end. That in some ways that maybe it needed to end this way for her in order to finally, for us to really finally look at ourselves because she had tried to fit every single archetype. And it didn't work. And she tried to transcend archetypes. And that certainly didn't work. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it wasn't about aptitude or intelligence. And that's the thing, right? And it wasn't even about authenticity. Because I actually think that she is one of the most authentic, genuine people when allowed to be. You know? And so... Uh, I, yeah, I mean, it, it really, it, it would have been nice to have started her story that way and ended it in a very different way. It would have been nice. Maybe we'll get to see that future for someone else. We will. We, we will get to see will. that future for someone but else. But we have to keep fighting. Absolutely. And we have to not rest in our laurels. And, and we have to know our history. We have to know where we come from. Allison, what's your brave, not perfect moment? When's the moment you said, you know, fuck it to perfection and you just did something really brave? Writing this book was brave. 
Uh, I could have taken myself out of it completely, but you'll see that my lens is really there and the way that I experience these stories, I share about that. Uh, this is my first book. I've never written a book before. I'm not a historian. I'm a journalist. Uh, so just having the confidence to, to do something like this and to also share my own story because the reckoning with the 90s is also my reckoning. It's also me understanding why I thought all of these women were bitches. And it wasn't because they were. It was because there was a media narrative that was really invested in casting women in a certain way and dehumanizing them. And I internalized that. And now I think we all need to reckon with it. I love that idea about writing about something that you're curious about and not that you're an expert on. And, you know, I hope all of our listeners really, you know, like pick up on that because I feel like that's a lesson that I've learned too. Like, you know, it's, it's about like, it's so fun to write, to research, to, you know, to learn and then to like, like you said, put your own interpretation to it. Um, Curiosity can make you into an expert. Yeah. You and, know, if you nurture it. Absolutely. And certainly make you into an author. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Proof. Wow. That was an intense ride down memory lane, but it was a good reminder about how much more work we still have to do and that we still have a culture um, that's deeply ingrained about the way we feel about strong women and that we have to be relentless uh, in fighting these archetypes uh, and making it possible for this next generation of women to be everything and anything. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Brave Not Perfect. Got a question for me? Send us a note at bravenotperfectpodcast at gmail.com or call in directly via the Anchor app on your phone. Until next time, this has been an episode of Brave Not Perfect with me, Reshma Sajani.